All right, guys, let's get kick it off here. Good morning. Um, in case we haven't met yet, my name is Adam McGarry. Uh, I've been here at Delray about three years, and I'm the husband to Sarah and father to Joshua, Caleb, Abigail, Joanna, and Samuel. Um, over the next two weeks, we're going to be exploring the broad and rich topic of the gospel and work. And there's so much that we can reap from God's word on the doctrine of work and a lot more than we can contain in just two classes. So while this is not exhaustive, um, you can see on the handout that you were just given uh, that we've divided the, the two weeks into how work fits into the gospel, the gospel story, and then how the gospel fits into our work. Uh, so this week is primarily about designs and definitions, but you'll see it's also uh, about a lot more than just employment. Uh, and then next week, we're going to zoom in more specifically on how we are to work in light of the gospel. So let me open us with a quick word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Well, Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, teaching us that you are a creative God, that you created us in your image. You are a working God, still working today. We thank you for the opportunity to, to bear your image in the world and because of your son to share the gospel of his work and what that means for us. Lord, I pray that the words would be more clear than what's been prepared on the page and that you would speak into our hearts. We know that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are present. So I pray that you would open the ears uh, of our hearts today. We would hear your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So think back for a moment to your childhood. You were often asked, what did you want to be when you grow up? Is anybody doing the job that they wanted to be when they grow up now? And is anybody happy that they're not doing the job that they wanted to be? And anybody willing to volunteer what one or two of those jobs was? Russell? Bottle cap maker. <laughs> what inspired that? No idea. <laughs> Connie? I wanted to be an actress. Okay. And I'm thrilled I'm not in that mess. There you go. But instead, you're in politics. Well, at least there is a conservative side to politics. You That's know true. What I'm there is a, a side that honors us, there is a side that mm -hmm. is allowed. And in Hollywood, which I worked for 19 years, it, for the most part, has lost it. Well, speaking, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, speaking of politics, being here in Washington, the adult version is, so what do you do? Or here in this town, so who do you work for? And specifically, those questions are aimed at defining you. you know, defining how you spend your time during the standard 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. five-day work week, which is roughly 40 to 45 hours per week. And basically, they want to know who pays you for your labor so you can pay your bills. But for the Christian... The answer to these questions has a deeper significance than simply breaking the ice or explaining the title on your business card. While our jobs do seem to consume our weekly daylight schedule and certainly a lot of mental capacity, they typically actually only account for 38% of our waking hours per week. I had to double check my math on that. Our jobs consume about 38% of our waking hours, typically. But as Christians, we are defined by more than 38% of our lives because we are 100% bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
Well, that's great. You say, I affirm that. Praise the Lord for that. But you don't understand. In my 38% of my work week, I'm a nurse. And I'm going to be changing bedpans all week. Or I'm a stay-at-home mother, changing diapers, cleaning up after tornadoes of destruction. I'm a landscaper. I mow grass. I'm going to mow it again in two weeks. I'm a corporate executive. I've got a mandate to rake in cash, and I've got a competitor lurking. Or I'm a baker, and I make food, but people don't seem to care when they enjoy it that I came up with the recipe on my own, and I, I made the food with my own hands. Or I'm retired or unemployed, so what difference do I make? And because we're not a pastor or a missionary or working for a nonprofit, it's easy to feel like there is no eternal significance to our daily grind. And it does seem like a daily grind, doesn't it? When we open God's word to the first book, it doesn't take long to see that the first man and the first woman failed to follow the first instructions given to them by God. And it's easy to assume that because man rebelled against God, we now have work. It's easy to allow the difficulty of work to define what work is. But again, if we look closer to God's word, we'll see that his definition of work and his purpose for work predates even the first humans and covers a lot more than how we spend 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. We learn that despite what the culture believes, work is not about us. It's about God. It's not about what we do. It's about whom we serve. We see that God uses believers and non-believers, highly visible jobs, seemingly mundane jobs, to accomplish his will and provide for the common good of all people. We see that as image bearers of God, how we work is a reflection upon how we view him and how we portray him to others. So our motivation for completing that spreadsheet matters to God. Why we change that diaper matters to God. How we achieve those corporate mandates matters to God. For whom we work, why we work, and how we work perhaps matters more than where we work or the outcome of our work. Well, let's look at our uh, big idea here. If someone could read that, that big idea statement for us. Thank you. So predictably, we're going to start briefly in the book of Genesis, which reveals the origins of the world and humans and contains the first job description. Now, there are entire foundations classes on creation of the world, creation of man, so we're not going to go through all of that, but just briefly refresh our minds. Uh, turn with me to Genesis 1, and if someone could prepare to read verses 26 and 27, I'll get us started with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with God doing work, bringing into existence everything physical, and then bringing order to the chaos. So work was not the result of punishment or drudgery, but it is an exalted, creative, God-like activity of unparalleled excellence that reveals to all creation the attributes of God. Romans 1, 19 through 20 states, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So if we could read verses uh, 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, that's the pinnacle of God's created order and those to whom Roman, Romans 1 refers. Thank you. So there you have the origin and design of man made in the image of God, male and female. Now comes the purpose or the job description. Can you read verse 28? And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thank you. So man was created to work. But notice how God blessed them before assigning them their work. In an excellent sermon at T4G 2018, Ligon Duncan points out that the blessing precedes the command. They were blessed and then given commands to follow. So obedience to the commands doesn't result in being blessed, rather it's the context in which they experience the blessing. And I highly encourage you to listen to the full message. It will edify your soul. So what did God command them to do after blessing them? How much uh, were they to fill the earth? Part of it? All of it. All of it. And how much uh, dominion were they to exercise? All. All of it? Okay. So notice how the tasks in verse 28 are interrelated and interdependent. Man is to be fruitful and multiply, so as to fill, subdue, and rule. In order to subdue and rule, man will have to be fruitful, multiply, and fill. That is why being made male and female was indispensable. God gave marriage so man and woman could complete this God-given image-bearing task. Adam could not accomplish that alone. And because man is made as an image-bearer of God, the way he fills, the way he subdues, the way he exercises dominion over all creation should reflect the character, work, and glory of God. So what is the blueprint of man and work? Originally, being made in the image and likeness of God, working with God's image bearers to fill the earth with God's image bearers, subduing it according to God's character, ruling it as God's representative, all while pointing to the character and glory of God through it. Obedience in this context in which we as humans, this is the context in which we have dignity and flourish as God intended. And as man works, he is to make the ways of the invisible God visible to all who behold what he does. Well, it sure doesn't resemble that now. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and exchanged dignity for depravity, work would change. The mandate itself would not change but it would become a lot more difficult to achieve. We'll discuss that further in the back half of the lesson. Now, unfortunately, throughout most of church history, the doctrine of work would lose its meaning. It would fail to be taught according to the whole counsel of God, and in a way it would result in humans losing an understanding of our purpose. Over time, only certain work came to be seen as significant to God. Before we move into that, are there any questions on original design? Well, one of the fruits 
of the Reformation is the recovery of and fuller development of the doctrine of work that we're examining today. So we'll take a quick look at how that unfolded in the context of uh, two callings, two graces, two commandments. So that's uh, point two, or, or number two on our handout there. And again, this is not exhaustive, it can't be. Um, but I think this is the most succinct representation of the last 500 years of thought regarding the rediscovery of the purpose of work based on our time constraints. And it also will put into context who we are as 100% belonging to Christ, which should then help us appropriately know where to place the daily labor, the 38%. And since the glory of God is the purpose of work, the glory of God should inform and transform now how we view work. So when Martin Luther took the sledgehammer to the salvation by works doctrinal drift of the previous thousand years, one of the foundations he recovered was the, the doctrine of vocation, which comes from the Latin word vocari, which means to call. So based on this definition, our vocation is whatever we've been called to do. However, prior to the Reformation, having a vocation came to mean only the spiritual work endeavored by clergy and those in the church professions. The rest of the people, the rest of us, performed temporal earthly work. And Luther challenged this assumption that only clergy had a calling from God. So let's look at the verse that God used to uh, open Luther's mind to this. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 17. If someone could read that. Thank you. So we see for Luther, God illuminated that, that God calls people, not only to repentance and faith, but he has appointed them to the very circumstances of life before and after they are called. In the context, Paul has just been talking about conversion with slavery and freedom, marriage and divorce, circumcision and uncircumcision. Do you have to change your circumstances now? And other than repenting from sin, he's saying no, because God may have a purpose for you where he's placed you when he called you. And if God has placed you there, it is just as holy of a calling as the one called to ministry. Luther suggests that Christians have two callings, a spiritual calling and an external calling. The Puritans relabeled it general calling, particular calling. Os Guinness refined it further as primary and secondary callings, which is what we'll use for our morning. So let's take a look at the handout. Uh, under A, uh, point one, primary calling. When God calls us in Scripture, he is normally calling us to salvation. Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is a very succinct yet comprehensive view of the calling of those predestined or elected for glory. God chose you through grace. He calls you to respond in faith in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. He declares you justified or in right standing with him by counting Jesus' righteousness as your own, and then he will resurrect you to a glorified body in the same way he resurrected Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 declares, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it is important to note here what generates a primary calling in the first place. Just two verses prior, in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. 
So taking with the next verse in verse 10, we see that it is not our works which merits us for salvation, but even before we existed, we were given salvation by grace through faith and then created for good works. God has good purposes for us, and our good works are in response to being saved. Our primary calling is not something we have to earn. It is a gift from God that he bestowed on us and accomplished for us before we even existed. But it is more than just a calling to salvation. It is a calling to a person. We are called by Jesus, to Jesus, and for Jesus. And the called are expected to respond to the caller. Now, if this is your first time joining us this morning or you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are glad that you are here to hear this good news. And in a moment, we're going to dig deeper into the story of work within the context of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But first, listen to these words from Jesus in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. The good shepherd calls his sheep, and his sheep hear and respond. This is our primary calling to salvation by, to, and for Jesus, who is the good shepherd. So please do not harden your hearts if your heart hears his voice today. And anybody here would be happy to talk with you further. Now, our primary calling is not an end to itself. It yields a therefore or a herefore, as in, so what are we here for? And in the Ephesians passage we just read, we learn about who did what when, but verse 10 tells us the why. We were created to do good works and called to walk in them. God calls us to salvation so that we might take part in his grand plan to show off his magnificence to all creation. When God called Noah, it was to restart humanity. When God called Abram, it was to begin a new nation. When God called Joseph, it was to preserve that new nation in the midst of famine. When God called Moses, it was to lead this nation out of bondage. When God called Isaiah, it was to call this nation to repentance. When God called John the Baptist, it was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah and to call men to repentance. And when Jesus called the disciples, it was to send them into the world to preach the gospel and make more disciples. These are big, visible, grand callings on an international scale. But God also called Bezalel to build him a wooden box. He called curtain makers for the tabernacle. So just as we have a primary calling, we also have a secondary calling, point two. Our secondary calling is how we live in light of or in response to our primary calling. The purpose of our primary calling is salvation by grace, through faith, and our secondary calling is to do good works in the response. Notice it is not good work, but good works, and there's not a limitation to just one area of life. Now, as American Christians, we are told and tempted by the lie that life is made up of uh, compartments, it's compartmentalized. What are one or two of those worldly leaning lies that we're tempted to believe about segments of life? Like separation of church and state, which yeah. creates a mindset that there's a block there. Yeah, so like, uh, um, how do you go as far as saying separation from church and the rest of the week? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. How someone conducts their private life doesn't matter so long as they're... It's like public-private. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. And I think because of the toil of work, as Christians were tempted to be working for the weekend, and we dread the Manic Monday. But if we look at Paul's counsel, Paul doesn't limit these good works to just the spiritual side. It is a lifestyle in response to being called by the Good Shepherd. So Oz Guinness then defines the secondary calling is considering who God is as sovereign. It's that everyone, everywhere, and in everything should speak, think, live, and act entirely for him. There's no separate compartments there. Scripture reveals that we um, have multiple secondary callings. The reformers cited family, society, church, and work. For example, some of my secondary callings are to be a husband and to be a father, to be a son, to be a neighbor, a congressional staffer, a member of DRBC, and a citizen. For someone else, it might be a son, single, student, DRBC member, and citizen. Others might be mothers, widowers, dog walkers, or retired. On the handout, uh, we're not going to go through it, but under part, part B, there's um, the most common secondary callings and some scripture that, um, that refers to that. But there are also foundations classes uh, that you can go back and listen to that get into much uh, deeper um, explanations of those. Um, but we see, you know, just briefly, some of us are called to singleness, perhaps for a season. Some are called to marriage. If you are called to be a wife, you demonstrate your submission to the Lord by submitting yourself to his design for marriage and the accountability role he assigned to your husband. As our brother Craig pointed out in the Foundation's class on gender roles in the home, this submission is not for all women to all men, but only within God's design for the gospel mirroring context of husband and wife. And there may be men that women submit to as, as bosses or as shepherds within the church, but men would also be subject to those same uh, to that same standard of submission. And then as uh, Brother Josh Hart pointed out, Ephesians 5.21 points out that within the context of the church, we all submit to each other out of reverence to Christ. If you are called to be a husband, you demonstrate your submission to the Lord by loving and leading your wife in the same way that Christ loves and leads the church. If you are called to parenthood through birth, adoption, or fostering, we are to raise our children to fear the Lord and obey His commandments. And as citizens, we are to obey authority which has been instituted by God and also pray for our leaders and the welfare of the nation in which we live. And we are all called to make disciples. Our secondary callings exist to support our primary calling. We'll get into that more next week, the, the, the daily work and, and how our secondary calling um, has been redeemed by Christ. But let's look at Colossians 3, to 24, which I think gives us a proper posture for our secondary callings and especially our 38% of our time. Somebody read that? Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Long servants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters, know by, by way of eye service as people to others, but with sincerity of heart, praying the Lord, whatever you do, work hard with, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Thank you. Again, no compartmentalization there. Whatever you do, work heartily because your real boss is the Lord. If you are a parent, parent as though working for the Lord. If you are a student, study as though working for the Lord. If you are unemployed, Live out your other callings as working for the Lord. 
if you're a federal employee. Resist the temptation to cheat the machine and work as though working for the Lord. Don't hinder your hustle just because the earthly boss is not watching. I remember once when I was interviewing a young man for a job in our office, I asked him, how does he stay motivated during the mundane office tasks? And he said, because I know my heavenly father is watching and I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. He said that in an interview. Well, he did get the job and he did prove to be a very faithful servant to both his earthly boss and his heavenly father. Let's pause briefly, see if there's any questions on primary and secondary callings, kind of the, the general umbrella of that. Other? Absolutely. And we're going to definitely dive into work becoming an idol um, next week. But absolutely. Um, if, if we're not working heartily for the Lord, then we're working heartily for something else. And it could be security. It could be love of the world. It could be desires of the flesh. Whatever it is, it's not for the Lord. And anytime that's, he's not prominent and, and primary, then yeah, absolutely. Russell? No, and we're about to transition right to that. Great, great lead-in. Um, let's, um, let's jump into letter B, um, which is called Two Graces, and that puts our secondary callings into further context in the marketplace, which is where not all of us, but most of us spend the 38% of our waking hours. And this would fall under God's providence, and I would refer you back to the Foundations class on the doctrine of God's providence. So some people saw Luther's uh, definition of vocation as too static, although he wasn't saying you had to stay where you were. But it was John Calvin who elaborated on this doctrine further with the more dynamic view that, that you could change your vocations. Like the other reformers, he taught that every Christian has a vocation or calling to serve God in the world in every sphere of human existence. And Luther and Calvin believed that every sphere of human existence matters to God. So Luther recognized that while Christ instructed us to pray for our daily bread, he did not prescribe the means by which we would receive our daily bread. So God could rain down bread from heaven, like manna, as he did in Exodus 16.4, but he may also use a non-Christian farmer who sells his crop to a non-Christian equipped with baking skills, who sells his bread to a Christian delivery driver, who delivers the bread to a non-Christian shopkeeper, for us to purchase with the money that we earn serving coffee to the farmer and the delivery driver alike. The full marketplace, which some say is the intersection of secondary callings. Calvin was also one of the first to suggest a distinction between saving grace, or a special grace, and the common non-saving grace. Saving grace is what precipitates our calling um, to salvation. Common grace, on the other hand, is part of how God provides for and preserves order within his world using Christians and non-Christians. So yes, God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, as in Matthew 5.45. But he also uses humans to provide daily bread, to cultivate our minds, and to preserve order and execute justice. And these benefits extend beyond Christians and non-Christians. God uses Christians and non-Christians for those purposes. All of Egypt and the surrounding nations benefited from Joseph's stewardship of Egypt's grain. But God's people also benefited from a Persian king, Cyrus, allowing them to, to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. God employed common grace when he prevented Abimelech from committing sin with Abraham's wife, Sarah. 
and he employs common grace now to restrain his wrath against sinful mankind. 2 Peter 3.9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. But we know that won't last forever. Now finally, God employs common grace to bestow his blessings physical and spiritual on all mankind, including those who will reject his son. And that's why non-Christians can show heroism as a firefighter or as a soldier, or some non-Christians might seem more generous than, than even Christians. Non-Christians might look like they are receiving blessing after blessing with, with power, with riches and pleasure. They may even actually enjoy their labor and look forward to their work as if there never was a curse. However, to please God, our work must be done to the glory of God, obedient to the word of God, and motivated by faith and love for God. Otherwise, all will arrive at the same conclusion as the teacher in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11. He says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found no pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. As Christians, with primary and secondary callings, we have a more active role to play in how God provides for and preserves order in this, in this world. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he answered with two that summarize the entire law and the prophets, which is letter C. These two commandments align neatly as lenses through which we should see and live out our primary and secondary callings. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Mark 12 adds, with all your strength. And Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, which was recited daily by the Jews and represented total devotion to God. And then verse 39 says, And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19. And again, I refer you to Duncan's T4G sermon, which he masterfully masterfully exposits uh, that truth further. So love of God and love of neighbor. Be wholly devoted to God and be a good neighbor. Through these two commands, we can see how our primary and secondary callings ultimately serve to bring glory to God, which is our primary calling. Well, our secondary callings um, are a major way in which we love God. How do we love God? Through our work by working heartily for him, because we are working for him. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 is a very similar um, uh, passage from the Colossians 3, 23, where he, he talks about eye service and people pleasers, uh, rendering, uh, doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service with, with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. He uses the words people pleasing and eye service. Why do you think that is? Why does he say it twice? when he's giving instructions on how we are to work and who we are to work for. I think he knows that our heart is both lazy, but we also crave praise. And so our motivations are wrong. And we'll talk more about that next week, but for now we just need to remember that God notices not just what we do, but the condition of our heart when we do it. And his approval is the only approval that really matters. 
Whatever we do, we are to work heartily, working as to the Lord, not for men, out of love for God, knowing that he is watching, and will reward us with not only a share of Jesus' inheritance, but also actual rewards in eternity and occasionally here on earth. We've had a rough stretch at work recently with campaigns, lawsuits, plenty of unpleasant people. But the Lord was able to bring this scripture to mind, and I was then able to remind my colleagues during the worst days that we press on because we are not working for men. We are working for the Lord, and we can count on him to work all things together for our good, either in the here or the hereafter. Well, secondly, we bring glory to God through secondary callings as we love our neighbors. We already talked about bread from farmers and shopkeepers, but some of the other jobs, just think about teachers, parents, pastors, airline pilots, chefs, waiters, musicians, clothing designers, bankers, government employees, some of them, military. God gives each person a set of talents that are to be used to love our neighbors. And let me clarify that all lawful occupations are worthwhile and fit into God's providential care for all people and creation. All of those have dignity and are useful to God, even the ones that seem mundane to us. But it is important to note that our secondary callings only have value as they line up with God's purposes, not our own. And this should humble us because it is not our advanced education or our finely uh, tuned abilities or our training. Those are things that the world exalts and idolizes. Those are not the things that bring the most glory to God. Rather, it is recognizing that our sovereign Lord equipped us for a particular calling to please him and to love our neighbor through our work, the very good works that he prepared for us in advance to walk in. Now, to Russell's point, uh, I want to briefly touch upon secondary callings and this notion of balance. While it is true that we are called to a specific standard of faithfulness in each of our callings, which is to bring glory to God and love our neighbor, we are not called to balance all of our callings with each other. The reason is because not all callings are treated equally. As Christians, it is easy to say yes to a lot of things, a lot of good things, things right here at Delray Baptist Church. We feel that we're supposed to be faithful church members, faithful employees, faithful friends, faithful spouses, faithful parents, faithful neighbors, faithful stewards of our bodies as a temple of the Lord, and yet still find time for discipleship, evangelism, personal devotions, and that awesome Bible study that Garrett leads minutes after the rooster crows. Sometimes it can feel like juggling balls or spinning plates, and all it takes is for one to hit the floor before they all hit the floor. But balance is not what we are called to. We are called to Jesus, primarily, and to him, all things are secondary. We don't balance Jesus with anything else in our life. Remember Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So being sold out to Christ is our first priority and primary calling. And we express that by how we live out our secondary callings, by working heartily as for the Lord, not men, and bringing glory to him in everything we do. Now, there are two particular secondary callings that need to be viewed differently than the others, almost as primary secondary callings, because these are institutions created by God and consummated through covenant. The first is our calling in the church. Every Christian has a secondary calling to the church. 
Our primary calling is to Christ, but our secondary calling is to our brothers and sisters who make up this church. We don't have time to read 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 20, but it's the body of Christ. Some are hands, some are feet, some are noses, but all arranged as God intended. None have more value or less value than others. They all make up the body, and without them, the body's incomplete. There are over 50 one another commands that help us understand how to live life together as the body of Christ. Because life together on this side of eternity is preparation and a foretaste of life together for all of eternity. We will be spending eternity together with the brothers and sisters in this room. But your boss, who claims a right to your Sunday morning, may not be there. Members of your family who ridicule you for believing in an invisible creator may not be there. The guys on the softball team may not be there. And one of the best ways to glorify God where he has placed you and one of the most loving things that you can do is to make sure that you share this good news of Jesus Christ with your boss, with those family members, and with that second baseman. But Lord willing, all of us in this room will be there spending eternity together. And until that time, we've made a covenant with each other. Let's look at one passage from our church covenant. Uh, if someone could get Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thanks. So we pledge to each other that we will regularly assemble and to worship God. Uh, we will mutually build each other up in Christ. And whatever you, are attempt, you might be tempted to exchange regular time with these brothers and sisters for, whether it be more sleep or more leisure or a less burdened conscience, Please know that it is not worth getting picked off by the prowling lion that Peter warns us of in 1 Peter 5.8. And in addition, the body needs you. You might be the nose or the left foot of this body. If in Ephesians 4.1-3, uh, also in our covenant, we pledge we will work and pray for the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace with one another. So we are to bear with one another in love and then be eager to maintain unity with each other. And to do that, we need a special commitment to each other. Another secondary calling that uses the body as a metaphor but doesn't function like the others is the institution of marriage. Matthew 19, 4 through 5, the Pharisees are testing Jesus on the topic of divorce, and he reminds them of the doctrine of marriage, which we previously saw predates the fall. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So we saw in Genesis 2 that God created marriage because Adam could not accomplish his primary mandate and his secondary callings without Eve. And as we learned in the Foundations class on gender and family, Eve's role as Adam's helper was not something she does some of the time, it's who she is. What that means is that if you are called to marriage, marriage is a calling that undergirds all your other callings because you are now one flesh. If you're a wife, marriage is the lens through which you see 
all your callings. And in every calling, you are your husband's helper. And if you're a husband, marriage is something that should apply to all of your callings. In every calling, you are incomplete without your wife as your helper. So marriage is not just one calling to be balanced with the others. It is the context in which you live all aspects of your life. So I am not to approach marriage to Sarah as needing to balance her with my role as a congressional chief of staff, but rather approach being a chief of staff as a husband to Sarah. And I remember one time in particular when I needed to repent and seek Sarah's forgiveness for having these in the wrong order. And the Lord opened my eyes through one of Sarah's answers in community group that indicated that I had been neglecting her for, for a period of time by overcommitting myself to other callings. And subsequently, God convicted me to withdraw preemptively from receiving a final offer on a new job, in large part because of the impact it would have had on Sarah at the time. So brothers and sisters, remember your primary calling should always be primary. Your secondary callings are in response to and should support your primary calling. As Christians, we have a special commitment to each other as the body of Christ. And we are, if we're called to marriage, we are to view all of our callings through the lens of marriage. And just to clarify, for those who are single, your secondary callings play out in the context of the church, the neighborhood, and the marketplace. And there's no less value because it's not marriage. All right, we are uh, flipping over to the second side. Um, any quick questions on secondary callings, balance? Thankfully, we're gonna cover the, the bulk of the middle of this next week, so don't, don't be uh, discouraged here. Um, but the context that I chose for this, Mercury did a great class on um, creation, fall, reconciliation, redemption. And so we're not going to go through those doctrines, but that's the framework. Those are the chapters that we're going to look at work and see how work changes um, through the chapters of salvation. Many Christians, um, because of the challenges of this world, were tempted to, to limit the focus of the gospel from the story of man's fall um, to the redemption of Christ. So from the fall to the cross. And it's almost as if the Bible begins with Genesis 3. And that's why the world stinks. It was, it was created. It's something that we endure just to escape. Um, but if we look at the whole counsel of God, we see that there are two additional bookend chapters to his gospel that reshape everything, including the fall and salvation. So we've got, um, in the beginning, work was created. After the fall, work is cursed. After the cross, work is redefined. And in the new heaven and new earth, work will be restored. And through that lens, we see that the earth is not something we need to endure until we escape. It was created to be our home. And it always was intended to be, and it will be for eternity uh, once it's restored after Christ's return. So let's take a, a quick uh, look at uh, point A, letter A. Um, back in Genesis 1, we've, the first thing we, that God communicates to us is his act of creating, as we said. He goes on to create the night, the day, the earth, the sky, the land, the sea, vegetation, stars, creatures, uh, land animals. He is a creative God, and work is part of his character. Then he goes on to water the earth. He forms a man. He breathes life into him. He plants a garden. He creates a helper for the man. We don't have time to read this, but uh, I think on the handout, we've got um, Job. Oh, I don't have it on there. Sorry. Write down Job 38, 1 through 11. It's a, it's a glimpse of God 
telling Job, first of all, you've forgotten who I am, so let me remind you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? And then he goes on to describe with precision how he marks off water boundaries and how he puts the clouds in the skies and he, he, he flings the stars. And he says, were you there when I did all that? Tell me, you must know. And Job's only response is, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, you, you, are, you are God. And, and I thought I knew God, but now I, I see God. Uh, and then also write down Proverbs 8, 27 through 31. Because while Job wasn't there, wisdom was there. And it's a beautiful passage where wisdom is personified. And it mirrors that Job passage where wisdom is saying, I was there when he laid the markers. I was there when he laid the cornerstone. And he delighted in me in doing it. So God's act of creation, God's act of work was wise. Well, second thing that we learn um, is that work is good. In, in verse 31 of Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Have you ever finished a project, maybe even a home repair that actually went right, and you sat back and thought, this is good? Imagine what God saw when he beheld Signy, the largest star currently known to man, which he affixed in place with his fingertips, or the neutrino, which is one of the smallest particles currently known to man. Um, and read the rest of Job 38 through 41. It's another just beautiful passage where God is calling Job's attention to, to look at this animal, and look at how I made him, look at, this, um, uh, look at the, the ocean, and look at the waves. It's, it's beautiful. There's a wisdom and an, an intelligence to God's design. Well, the third thing we learn is that, as we read in verse 26, that, that God is, uh, man is God's work product, and he's made in his image to work for his glory. Uh, the fourth thing we see is that man was equipped for work and given work to do, and we went through that. Uh, Nancy Piercy uh, describes that, uh, and other people describe it as the, the cultural mandate. It was to create cultures. It was to, to cultivate the earth and spread the Garden of Eden, and to fill the earth with God's image bearers who reflect his glory, thereby filling the earth with God's glory. The last thing we see in the creation account is that God rested from his work. It says that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And it doesn't mean that he was tired or that he then went and dozed off for 2,000 years. It's just that he ceased the work that he was doing. Isaiah 40, 28 reminds us that he does not grow faint or grow weary. God does not sleep or slumber, and he does not expend energy when he works. And in fact, verse 29 follows that he gives power to the faint and to him who, might, uh, who has no might. He increases their strength. Jesus reminds us that God is still working in John 5, 17, when he's questioned about working on the Sabbath. He goes, no, God is still working, and I'm still working. That's why I'm working on the Sabbath, because I'm doing it for the Father. We know that Jesus is still working in, in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, because he is holding all of this created uh, order together. And if he didn't, it'd be a, a massive chaos. And regarding the Sabbath, notice the pattern that, that God created. Six days of work, one day of rest. We are made to work, but also God built in a day of rest, not because he needed it, but because we need it. So taking time to rest is important. It should not be ignored, but it should also not become an idol, where our heart is always longing for a uh, vacation to escape our vocation. 
All we had to do was follow God's instructions, and we would flourish as humans and would bring glory to God. But instead, we exchanged dignity for depravity. That leads to, to point two. Um, we'll see quickly that man chose to rebel and work for his own purposes. Um, Eve was tricked by the serpent. Adam uh, forsook his secondary calling to be the protector and the leader and, and followed suit. We know Satan went after the same uh, line of attack with Jesus in his temptation. And then John, 1 John warns us that today we also face that same line of attack and our work is one of the ways in which it comes at us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. So Satan's attack in the garden was to assault God's order of gender responsibility. Adam complied. So we see that then as a result, work becomes toilsome, futile, and compulsory. We'll flesh that out next week. Um, one of the things to point out, though, is that um, the mandate didn't change, but God's judgment falls on the two things that woman uh, was created to do. She will now experience painful childbirth, and she will have conflict with the husband she was designed to help. But in God's mercy, she still has those tasks to do. He could have put them to death. But instead, he mercifully gave them life, but the work became harder. And in verse 17 of Genesis 3, God reprimands the man for failing to lead his wife. He curses the ground the man was supposed to cultivate, and he introduced physical suffering, fatigue, frustration to his work to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. But in God's mercy, he still has those tasks to do. Work that was meant to be fulfilling because of who assigned it became futile and frustrating because of who cursed it. David Platt noted, work that was designed to be purposeful will now feel pointless. Work that was designed to be selfless has become selfish. Third consequence is that we were separated from God's presence and lost the connection between God, work, and worship. Man's sin leads to broken fellowship with God. A fourth consequence we see is that man now works primarily in his own strength and for his own glory. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, a clear indication. They say, let us build for ourselves a city. Let us make a tower with its top to the heavens and make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed. But God had restated the cultural mandate to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They want to do the opposite and make a name for themselves. God ends the project, he does disperse them, and we never do learn their names. And then John's going to preach to us on uh, Daniel 4 today. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar had a prideful boast, he became a, a grass-eating beast for a time until he acknowledged that... Uh, God was sovereign and his works are good. The fifth consequence from the fall is that there is no real rest from our work. In Ecclesiastes 2, uh, 23, we learn that even in the night his heart does not rest. And we know that work on earth would eventually come to an abrupt stop. Death became part of life. In God's mercy, he did not allow man to remain in this permanent state of separation from him. But life would serve no purpose without the third chapter uh, after the cross, which begins with Genesis 3:15, when God says to the woman, "I will put enmity between you and the woman," uh, or it says to the serpent, "and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." So God made a way for the fellowship to be restored. 
Before man could resume his original relationship with God and original work for God, he needs to be restored to God. And let's move on to, uh, since we're going to talk about that more next week, uh, the new heaven and the new earth work restored. We see in Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And in verse 3, we learn that God himself will dwell on the throne with, uh, and will be with us as our God. We will work for him in his presence. Isaiah 65.22 says, My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. It's in a portrayal of the new heavens and the new earth. And our primary work will be to worship God in the new heaven and the new earth. What a glorious day when we see him on his throne, when we work in his presence. Uh, Lastly, we'll see that work uh, will be restful because it will be in his presence, as it was for Adam and Eve. They had no worries. They had no toil. They had no cares. It was restful to be in the protection of God. So we see in summary that as Christians, we are defined by more than uh, our jobs, and our vocation is broader than our nine-to-five work week. All Christians have a primary calling to salvation by grace through faith. We are called by Jesus, to Jesus, and for Jesus. We are also given secondary callings that in everything we do, we should think, speak, live, and act entirely for Jesus. This includes not only how we spend the 38% of our work week doing our job, but 100% of our time loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, uh, and mind, and loving our neighbors. Put a few quick applications for this week, since we're going to get next week more into how to do your job in light of the gospel. I didn't want to leave you hanging. So what we've got is, you know, first, identify what each of your secondary callings are based on Scripture, and then reflect on how do you love the Lord and your neighbor through those secondary callings. Uh, Examine, are there any areas of your secondary callings that are out of order, uh, as it was in my case, or consuming more than their appropriate share? And this might be your job. Consider the state of your heart regarding how you view your secondary callings, including your job. And then how does your heart portray the Father uh, to your family, to your neighbors, and to your coworkers? You don't have to be in an office. You're portraying uh, that to, to everyone who sees And then cling to Scripture to help you avoid failure and recalibrate where necessary. Post Scripture where you need it. So maybe it'll be beside your bed, on the mirror, on the dashboard in your car, uh, at your desk. Uh, Passages like Philippians 2, 14 through 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So remember that your complaining and, and disputing at your work reflects on God. It reflects who you're working for. Uh, Psalm 118.24, I think of this often. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Rather than dreading what's awaiting me, I should be glad that I woke up and that God prepared the day for me. And then recall our passages in Ephesians and Colossians about you have a boss, but you're not working for man. You're working for the Lord. And then Pray. Pray early, pray often. And in particular, uh, pray the Lord's Prayer, not as a liturgical recitation, but we become what we pray. So if our prayers are about uh, the toil uh, and, and, and about what this does to us, then it almost becomes a self-centric view of work. But if we're praying the Lord's Prayer, if we're reflecting on the Psalms, if we're praying the Scriptures, then it becomes 
hallowed be your name, not my name. Your kingdom come, not the kingdom that I'm tempted to think I'm building. Um, your will be done, not my will to escape and find security in my job or in my income. I need daily bread because I'm frail and I'm human, but I also need to forgive others because I've been forgiven. And I need to be aware of that, that temptation awaits, and I need to be delivered from evil. So what better way to start your workday than to establish a God-centered rhythm to the routine? And lastly, remember that through the power of the Holy Spirit, how you live out your secondary callings can still make the invisible God visible to all who behold what you do. Any questions? We're right about out of time. All right, we'll come back next week if you want to learn how to, how to do your job to the glory of God. <laughs> um, Josh, can you close us out? Father, we thank you this morning that we can be here to open your word and learn from it. Father, we thank you for the, the gift of work that you have given. We pray that we as Christians seek to honor you in our vocations, that you would give us wisdom. Father, you'd help us to see that, that we don't live two lives, our Christian life and our work life, but we uh, as believers find our identity in Christ and that we will 